From 1368 to 1644, empires sought to establish economic dominance over trade routes in order to create large, land-based trading empires. Among these empires within the Eurasian continent was the Ming Dynasty. They dominated the continent's most vital trading network, called the Silk Road. The Silk Road spanned over 6,400 kilometers and connected the northwest to the southeast. Equipped with gunpowder and cannons, the Ming fashioned an army that controlled trade along this expansive network. Not only did the Ming control this trade, but they also exported highly desired porcelain and textiles. Since other empires demanded more Chinese goods, the Ming grew economically and built a dependence dynamic. However, during the decades, the Ming suffered from political and governmental mismanagement, which eventually led to financial problems. The more immediate causes for the collapse of the empire were massive droughts, floods, internal conflicts, and an external pressure from the north. In 1644, the Manchu overtook the very disorganized Ming Dynasty and founded the Manchu Dynasty, better known as the Qing Dynasty. The Qing continued the Ming's legacy of taking advantage of market demands. The Qing created some of the most desired luxury goods like silk and porcelain. The Qing dynasty lasted until the early 1900s. However, the Qing were too similar to the Ming. By focusing all of their attention on land-based trade, they had underdeveloped navies and maritime tools. This disadvantage would come and bite them later. Motivation for success. From 1450 to 1750, the European empires grew tremendously. As the underdogs of the land-based trading, they had less power than the Asian and Middle Eastern empires. Starting from 1450, they developed powerful navy tools and armies. The European empires grew in incredible size through forms of colonialism, imperialism, and slavery in the Americas. The European empires transformed into maritime empires where they controlled the oceans and the seas. However, European powers were still in their early stages as the Qing still controlled the vast majority of land-based trade routes. One example that demonstrates how the Qing still held power over the Britain was the tea trade. The British shipped Indian cotton and British silver to China, and China sold them Chinese tea, porcelain, and silk. The British greatly desired tea and porcelain while the Chinese and the Qing did not have a strong preference for Britain's goods. This one-sided dynamic would keep the Chinese in power. In the mid-19th century, Great Britain sought to upset this power dynamic, and they did this in a very surprising manner. A narcotic weapon. When the British desired to upset the trading power with China, they knew exactly how to use India to their benefit. For some context, in the 1600s, the British East India Company imperialized the majority of India and enforced long-distance leadership. This long-distance relationship allowed a small number of British officials to rule over many Indian citizens. In three states of India, which were Madhya, Pradesh, and Rajas, and 22 districts, Britain made a deal with the farmers. If you can grow us this crop, we will reward you with a lot of money. Many farmers were in disbelief and were confused. What could be so special about this crop? In the following months, hundreds of Indian farmers grew a foreign crop called opium poppy, or the Papaver somniferum. The opium poppy has gained popularity today as a medicine and an addictive drug, but the knowledge of its powers and its existence extends much further than a couple of centuries ago. The earliest reference to opium growth was in 3400 BC. In Lower Mesopotamia, or current Southwest Asia, Sumerians called it Holgil, 
or the joy plant. From the 14th century to the 18th century, Arabs traded opium across the Silk Road, usually for medical or recreational purposes. But it was not until the rise of the British Empire did opium truly become the lethal drug it is known today, otherwise heroin. Growing high quantities of poppy is dependent on dry warm climates. During the harvesting season, farmers cut across the petals to expose an egg-shaped seed pod, which inside contains an opaque, milky-colored sap. By boiling the sap in water and then drying it, Britain converted the once powerful sap into a transportable morphine base. Fighting back against opium. The Chinese without a doubt knew about opium, but they never knew it could be used as a weapon. In the early 19th century, the British exported vast quantities of its new addictive drug to China. In response, there were two main effects. First, the loss of labor force in China. And second, the flipping of power dynamics between China and Britain. First, the labor systems in China became dysfunctional because army members and workers stopped working to smoke opium. Thousands of Chinese suffered addiction to the drug, many experiencing chills and nausea. Ultimately, China began falling. The country's workers were trapped in addictions that prevented them from working their normal jobs. China no longer had a functioning population and had to deal with thousands of dying and disabled workers. Second, the British got what they wanted to upset the power dynamic. With thousands upon thousands of Chinese citizens buying the British export at large, China no longer held the one-sided power. The British now held the upper hand. In 1800, in response to these two problems, the Chinese banned the production and importation of opium. In 1813, they outlawed the smoking of opium and punished those who did by beating them 100 times. However, these attempts at resolving the mass addiction wouldn't work because no matter what they tried, opium was hard to get rid of because of smugglers. In the decades that followed, the British East India Company employed British and American traders to smuggle in opium from British and American ships anchored off the Guangzhou coast into China. By 1830, 100 Chinese smuggling boats were working the opium trade. To increase desire, the British East India Company lowered its prices, making opium easier to buy. Despite China's actions to prohibit the importation, the British continued to mercilessly funnel what was once recorded to be 40,000 chests of opium, more than 310,000 kilograms in total, which, to put in perspective, is equivalent to 310,000 water bottles filled with opium, or 775 grand pianos in weight of opium, which, keep in mind, is a drug that can be potent with just a gram. The opium plague had spread even to the army soldiers and government officials and students. This was truly a disastrous event. Raising tensions. However, the Chinese would not give up. By 1836, the Chinese government began closing opium dens, executing Chinese dealers, and deciding how to stamp out the fire. The Chinese government officially called a meeting to discuss what would be the best approach. At this conference, there were two sides. One side argued a pragmatic approach, which was raising taxes on opium users rather than confronting opium producers so that no one would buy a new expensive drug. The other side disagreed and believed that the government should eliminate all sources of opium and mercilessly destroy the producers. One of the main leaders of this approach was Lin Zixu, who argued that the problem was not within China, but the people outside it. 
In the end, Lin Zexu won the argument and he supervised a massive ban on the opium trade. Immediately after the meeting, he seized and destroyed tens of thousands of opium pipes, arrested over 1,600 Chinese dealers, and destroyed boats near Guangzhou he suspected had drugs. In six weeks, the foreign merchants gave in to Lin and turned over 2.6 million pounds of opium. Their ships were destroyed and Lin hired 500 Chinese men to mix the opium with lime and salt and dump it into the ocean. In destroying the countless ships that carried opium, Lin had raised tensions with Britain. Britain argued that China was out of touch with the normal international relations. Britain was not the only one who disagreed with China. American merchants also disagreed. In the late 1830s, China closed its port to any European traders. The rising tensions broke, and the opium wars ensued in 1839. War. In June 1840, British warships swarmed the ports of China and devastated the weak Chinese Navy army. They justified mass slaughter and barbarity on the premise that China would never repay its debt. As one officer mentions, it was one of the quote-unquote many most barbarous things that occurred disgraceful to our men. In two years, Britain forced China to surrender. China was forced to give up numerous trading ports, access to Chinese land, and Hong Kong to the British Empire. This event led to the Treaty of Nanjing, which was a treaty that allowed numerous benefits to the British and no benefits for the Chinese. For many, the Treaty of Nanjing was an incredibly embarrassing event because it was a loud declaration of China's defeat. China, for the following decades, was forced to partake in unequal treaties with Western powers, and soon, Western powers expanded greatly into China. Second Opium War in the mid-1850s, the Qing was in another conflict, this one, the Taiping Rebellion. The causes of the Taiping Rebellion were symptomatic of larger problems existing within China. Problems such as a lack of strong central control over large territory and poor economic prospects for a massive population. The Second Opium War, which brought English camps Royal Marines to Guangzhou, started after the Chinese seized a suspected pirate ship that was registered as a British merchant vessel. Afterward, a British warship sailed on the Pearl River and bombarded Canton. The French would later join in the battle against the Chinese. Both the US and the British were unsatisfied with the rewards they received from the Treaty of Nanjing and proceeded to attack Chinese port cities in Guangzhou and Tianjin. The Second Opium War was marked by continuous resistance from the Chinese and the battle of the Western powers, most notably Britain. The following treaties would be called the Unequal Treaties, mainly for their favoring of foreign power. However, the biggest effect would be China's interactions with the outside world, which they had barely interacted with before. China's early history was at first marked with technological and economic development, but throughout the 1400s to 1800s, China became one of many empires like the Ottoman Empire that resisted change of industrialization. In doing so, they became weak and underdeveloped, leading to massive weakness that the British exposed. Although China had suffered a difficult loss, it was a wake-up call that China needed to modernize and join the growing trend of industrialization. Was it really opium that caused the massive destruction of China? Although opium appears to be the main cause of the internal disarrangement of Chinese workers, leading to the massive loss, it may actually be China's ego that has gotten in the way. This argument can be explained by several overlooked factors. 
As Harry Jelber, a visiting scholar to the Center of European Studies for Harvard University mentions, opium was actually very common in China long before the 1840 war, where it was sold frequently and even senior officials smuggled them in. Especially during the 1820s to 1830s, when the Chinese Empire suffered social unrest from rebellious groups in the South, opium skyrocketed as a use for a calming sedative. Although it may seem that Britain was the villain in forcing China's gates open, it is wrong to assume that China was innocent. Jilber notes China's unwillingness to open itself up and modernize was also a main problem for their suffering. On another hand, were the opium wars preventable? In the book Imperial Twilight, the author questions whether tensions were raised because of miscommunication. As he writes, quote, If Charles Eliot had not let his panic get the best of him when he so dramatically overreacted to Lin Zexu's threats, or, quote, If Lin Zexu himself had been more open to working with rather than against Eliot, if they had cooperated on their shared interest in bringing the British opium smugglers under control, or if just five members of the House of Commons had voted differently in the early hours of April 10th, 1840, we might be looking back on a very different lesson from this era.